to No Baller. I am Chris Rawl. Thank you for joining me. It is Friday, May 21st. On today's show, I'll be talking about the continual search in sports to perfectly blend the body and the mind. Before we get to that, everybody knows I'm a big proponent of sports gambling being legalized within the state of Utah. And each day before the show actually begins, I'll be giving you one reason why I think that is so. The PGA Championship began yesterday, and I love betting individual matchups in golf in single days. So they'll put one player against one player, a gambling line, you choose a side. And Cam Smith is somebody who I've really gravitated towards within major championships. He's an Australian who has probably the most hideous mullet in the history of mankind. He does not cut a very striking figure. Uh, When you look at him as somebody who you think would look like a normal person. He's not really that. Uh, And yet Cam Smith in major championship golf, especially majors that play firm and fast, he is a person I love betting in individual matchups. So I take him yesterday against Daniel Berger. Cam Smith's plus 125, and he wipes the entire course with poor Daniel Berger. Daniel finishes at plus seven. Cam Smith, even par. I win the bet by a mile. And I feel great about it. I'll dip back into the Cam Smith well again because that's what I do in major championships. And it also gives us the reason today why gambling should be legal in Utah because it will make you root for people regardless of how hideous their hair or fashion choices are. Now, a word from our sponsor, Traeger Grills. With your masquerading and you Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill, perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. The very first thing that drew me to playing golf is the physical challenge of it. It was about probably seven or eight years ago now when I really, really got into the game. And the physical side of golf is a curse and a blessing. For those of you who value yourselves as somewhat athletic or possessing of hand-eye coordination, it's the most maddening thing on planet Earth to try and pick up a golf club and hit a golf ball. You can't do it. It's not one of those things that you can just randomly do and everybody goes, wow, I'm shocked by how good you are at this thing that you've never done. It's impossible to be that. No matter how athletically gifted you are, no matter how much hand-eye coordination you possess, you can't do that with golf. And so this was a big draw in the early days for me because I valued myself as somewhat athletic and I valued myself as somebody who possesses hand-eye coordination. And I would go and I would try to hit this tiny ball with a tiny club and I would duff it And I would pop it up. And half the time, I couldn't even find the club face. I would whiff the ball. And and it was maddening. And yet the competitive nature within me goes, you got to get better at this thing. You can't be bested by this stupid-ass ball and this club. And so I'm trying to get better at this physical challenge that's in front of me, you know, attempting to get a tiny ball into a tiny hole in the earth in four shots that's 400 yards away. That's a really cool physical challenge. You actually just think about it in those terms. A par five is in front of you and an average golfer is supposed to get, actually a a normal good golfer is supposed to get the ball, this tiny ball, this big into a hole 550 yards away in five shots. That's a really cool physical challenge that golf presents. 
So I lay down the groundwork and I go, I got to get better. I got to get better. I got to get better. I'm going to try and find the sweet spot on iron. How do I compress it? All that kind of stuff. Uh, And over the course of years, I get slowly better at those things. So you get to a certain point within the game of golf and the physical side of it makes more sense. You understand how to hit a flop shot. You understand how to hit a bunker shot. You understand how to make a putting stroke, how to hit a driver, all of the technique that goes into each of those things which you don't have naturally to begin with. I have to retrain my body in all of those areas because coming late to the game of golf, I came with a lot of ideas and, and principles of how the body generates torque and power that were tied into other sports. It's how I throw a football. It's how I shoot a basketball. It's how I swing a baseball bat. And while some of these principles apply to golf, On the most fundamental of levels, you kind of swing a golf club in an opposite manner to these things. And it's really hard to train your mind to think that. Just the simple idea in golf that in order to make the ball go higher, you have to hit down on the ball with an iron. That's unnatural in the way that the body thinks it should be hitting. So I'd be trying to scoop the ball up with an iron, naturally how the human mind would think a ball would rise. And I had to break down... That mindset and go, no, an iron comes down with a descending blow. And because of the loft of the club and the way that the ball is compressed, that is what's going to make it go higher. So you retrain your body. And I go through that over the course of years, still going through that to this day. I mean, that's a never ending search for the perfect driver swing or the perfect tiring swing, but getting substantially better at those things. So I get to a certain point and I find what sustains me within the game of golf, which is the mental side. It's that perfect blend of body and mind, the physical challenge and the mental challenge. And once you get to a better place within the game of golf, strictly speaking for the physical side, that's when the mental side becomes really, really, really important because that's the separator amongst people who are, are, are more physically gifted at golf. Uh, how do you actually train your mind? How do you find uh, a way to manage pressure and nerves within a situation where there's a lot of money riding on it or you're in a tournament and you want to do well because of the pride factor or you're going to win this trophy or or any of the things that tie into that kind of thing? How do you manage the pressure and nerves? That's completely a mind issue. And over the course of years, like I have to go through some baptism by fire moments that I've spoken about before on this show and, and just these continual tweaks where I go, okay, man, I'm responding on the golf course in a way that I don't in real life. Earlier in my career, you know, I'd get really angry on the golf course, and I'm not an angry person in life. And there's one notable moment where on hole 12 at Spanish Oaks, I three-putt, and I'm very angry about it, and I hammer my club down and break it. And it was a very unnatural reaction, if you know my emotional temperament. And so this was kind of a a turning point moment for me where I had to reflect on myself and go, okay, I can't play golf from a place of anger because that's not me. I don't perform well when I'm mad. As soon as I get really mad, my score goes straight down into the gutter. So how do I find a way to train my mind to embrace what I am off the course, on the course, this place that makes me feel things that are not natural to how I am. And that's been years and years of, of training for me. So I've, I've laid the groundwork with the physical side 
And now I'm continually laying groundwork with the mental side. I go, okay, how do I find things in a golf round every single day that make me happy? I have to play golf from a place of joy. That's when I'm able to piece together my finest rounds. Um, Bob Rotella, who's a famous golf psychologist, he, he wrote a book called Golf is Not a Game of Perfect. And when you embrace that idea that you will continually make mistakes within a round, then understanding how you will respond to those mistakes becomes very, very important. And that was a big learning process for me. Rather than responding to mistakes with anger and frustration, I had to get to a place through, I mean, a a lot of meditation, a lot of breath training, a lot of random things that I wouldn't have thought that I would embrace through those avenues I get to a place where I go, "Mm," rather than reacting to my mistakes in a negative manner, I go, it's all right. You're going to make mistakes. Uh, Do the best you can on the next shot and let's move forward. And I can reassess everything at the end of the round. But I have to be within the moment when it comes to the game of golf. That's how I find joy. That's how I play my best golf. That's a really big learning curve. And it's also very hard to blend both of these two things. It's almost never a day in the history of my golf career, which is going into a decade now that the physical side and the mental side are perfectly matching up because that's almost impossible to do. Even at a professional level, it's, it's something that's so rare that when we see it happen, we go, whew, that, that's something that's very special. When you have the physical and the mental blended at the highest level, the mind and the body, that combination, it's very, very, very rare. So this is true for all of sports. Golf is the one that I'm most familiar with on an amateur level because That's what I do every day. That's what I sink a lot of time and effort into. And every other sport I watch and I read about and I listen to podcasts. And I'm continually fascinated by the ways that professional athletes are trying to find that perfect mix of body and mind. We always note the physical side because it's really easy to comprehend. But the mind, it's a lot harder for us to A, see what kind of work is going into that. And B, just understand it because it's so exclusive to the individual person. So I think of a sport like ice hockey. And I think of the position of a goaltender. Which we can easily understand the physical abilities of a goaltender. They're flexible as hell. They're flopping around on the ice. They're doing splits that make me uncomfortable sometimes. I'm going, oh no, how have you not pulled every muscle in your body doing this? That's really easy to pick up on when we're watching it on the television. And yet an area that I don't think about as much when I'm just watching hockey, is the mental side. How do you train your mind to track a puck that's moving at incredibly high speeds in a sport where everybody is moving at a high speed? How do you train your mind to pick up something like that? It's a very interesting subject in and of itself. Connor Hellebuck is one of the best goaltenders in the world. He plays for the Winnipeg Jets. And within the last little while, there's been all of these pregame routine videos passed around of Hellebuck, where he's doing these mad, crazy eyes. You can see it if you're watching on video, and if you're not, I'll describe it for you. He just darts around. Like, think of a guy who's got this really intense-looking face, and his eyes are just bumping up and down, left and right, fast, 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 training his mind to pick up the puck in a way that you would train a muscle. You know, you do a bunch of bicep curls so you can get stronger. We don't necessarily think of tracking and training your eyes in a similar manner, but that's what goaltenders need to do. That's a skill that they have to have in order to pick up a 95 mile an hour puck coming off of a stick blade. 
So this segues nicely into a quote from James Myrtle of The Athletic that I'm going to read to you. Shooters typically have tails, a dipped shoulder, a shift of the leg, or a twitch of their stick blade. Know the tail, goalies say, and you might be able to react in time. Wait to see the puck actually leave the stick? Zero chance, says Craig Anderson, an 18-year NHL veteran now with the Washington Capitals. Biomechanically and scientifically, it's impossible. The human body does not react quick enough from the time the puck leaves the stick to the time it's in the net. You have to pick up on the shooter's cues if you have any chance of stopping the shot. End quote. So this is another really interesting part of or the combination of body and mind when it comes to goaltending. They have incredible physical gifts, but as Craig Anderson speaks to within this quote, as every goaltender knows, the vast majority of their training is built upon the mind. It's built upon study. It's built upon being able to identify cues that a shooter is giving you in advance. When they dip a shoulder, they go, okay, I know they are loading into a wrist shot. And I know based on where they're at on the ice, because I've studied this and I put myself in position 10 trillion times, I know that this is the specific area of the net that they are trying to shoot that puck into. So they're already getting into their stance and getting prepared to have a high glove side save because based upon what the shooter is showing them and based upon their study, that training of the mind that happens off the ice over and over and over again, they understand where that shot is going. So then when a 95 mile an hour shot comes in and a goaltender is just sitting on top of it, we understand how that process occurs. It's not strictly physical. And in fact, a lot of it is just training over and over your mind to understand what is going on around you and to process that. So when the shot is getting ready, you already know that it's there. I think about one of my favorite hockey players of all time, Joe Sackick, who was the captain of the Avalanche back in the 90s and the early 2000s, who is... Regarded as one of the greatest wrist shot artists of all time, uh, a dude who had the ability to fire in a moment's notice. He could be striding down the ice 100 miles an hour, and out of the blue, he was suddenly shooting a puck. And he would take goaltenders by surprise over and over because Sackick had mastered this art of, of eliminating what a goaltender knows is coming. We're seeing that in present day with a very notable goal scorer. His name's Austin Matthews. He plays for the Toronto Maple Leafs. He won the Rocket Richard Trophy this year, which is given to the highest goal scorer in the league. He scored 41 goals in 52 games. Over the last three seasons, he leads the NHL with 125 goals in 190 games. That roughly amounts to a 54-goal pace per season. Really, really, really high-level goal scorer. Uh, when you think about the up-and-coming generation, he is the very best goal scorer. And indeed, just based on raw statistics, he's the best goal scorer in hockey over the last three years. He's only 23 years old. So James Myrtle's article is all about Austin Matthews. And we see somebody who is that gifted at goal scoring and who is only 23. And I think a lot of us, myself included, would assume that is based a lot on natural God-given ability. A dude who just, he understands how to put the puck in the net. He has the physical makeup that allows him to do so. And it seems hard to believe that he could incorporate a lot of the mental side of the game into his process. And yet, as we're going to talk about, and as James Myrtle's piece, which is really, really, really good and fascinating, shows us, that's not necessarily the case. I'm going to read another quote from James Myrtle about Austin Matthews. Daryl Belfry is on staff with the Leafs as a player development consultant. 
One of his biggest projects has been to work with Matthews on his shot, in much the same way a swing coach would fine-tune a PGA Tour golfer's swing. Together, they have studied the way goaltenders get set to make saves and tried to find ways to counter their techniques. They have analyzed every shot he attempts, attempted in games, which can be as many as 15 a night, and picked apart those that were unsuccessful. Then they have tried to account for the misses by coming up with things Matthews could have done differently, end quote. So now we're into the cat and mouse game, and this is almost strictly mental. It's the mental battle on the goaltender side to understand a shooter's cues and what they are showing before the shot is fired. And now Austin Matthews, a dude who has great physical ability, he's sitting down with a coach, and after every single game, they're going, okay, this is what a goaltender thinks you are showing him. How do we eliminate those tells? How do we train your mind, first and foremost, to not give anything away? And what does that mean? And what do goaltenders expect? And then how do we rewire your actual brain and incorporate the physical side of it? Everybody has a natural way that they want to swing a golf club or shoot a hockey puck or shoot a basketball. And when you get into the hardest moments, history tells us that you try to revert to your natural tendencies. And so that's what this repetition, this breaking down of your natural tendencies is all about. It's why rewiring your brain and combining it with the physical side is so damn hard because under duress, you want to revert to what you were and only under the highest level of repetition and just like the mental strength that comes along with it, are you able to retrain yourself to swing a golf club or shoot in a different manner and be able to be more successful moving forward? That blend of body and mind, it is probably the most fascinating thing about sports for me. I think about the greatest athletes of all time, people who I truly genuinely love to watch, and they are that. It's LeBron James. For as much as we celebrate his athletic gifts, and rightfully so, the part of him that fascinates me most is his mind, his basketball IQ, how he comprehends how to play basketball, how he studies basketball relentlessly and is continually bettering himself at the mental side of the game, where players are going to be, how to dissect a defense, all of the stuff that partially is tied into LeBron's athletic ability because he's the biggest and the strongest and the fastest. But when you combine it with his mental side, that gives us a transcendent player. And that didn't just come about on a whim or naturally, the mental side of it for LeBron. Uh, the turning point of his career, in my opinion, is the 2011 finals against the Dallas Mavericks, his first season in Miami. And the Heat that year were the villains. People hated that LeBron had gone there. He, they hated the opening press conference, the not one, not two, not three championship statement, uh, and just the idea of these super teams forming. People hated it. So the Heat were the villain. Every arena they went into, booze, booze, booze. And LeBron, who had always kind of wanted to play basketball from a place more of joy, he found himself leaning into that, like, okay, we're going to be the big bad villain, and I'm going to play more out of this place of anger. And it became too much in the NBA Finals that year, and he kind of cracked mentally under that strain. And so the Heat lose. And during that offseason, LeBron had to come to a place much kind of like I had to with golf. What motivates you to do this thing? Is it because winning is the only thing that matters and everybody's making fun of you because you haven't won a championship yet? 
or do you have to tap into whatever your natural source of energy is that you find motivation from? And so LeBron coming out of that season was like, okay, I, I can't tap into this darker, angrier, nasty side. That's not who I am. I have to play from a more genuine place. Uh, and he started to incorporate that. And when a loss would happen and people wanted to say it was the end of the world and Jordan would never have done this, all of the things that we said about LeBron early in his career, he had to train himself to, to manage that and to say, it's not the end of the world that we lost this game. Uh, I'll try and do better the next time. And through this process, which he has continually bettered himself at over the course of the last decade, LeBron has risen to the heights that we now know him for. Uh, one of the most clutch players in the history of basketball, in the history of the playoffs, playoff LeBron, all of his accolades that go along with that. That's how LeBron came who he is. He, he had the physical side all along. He has bettered himself at that, but he had to find the blend with his mind. He had to understand how those two things work in unison to create a better whole. Tiger Woods, the greatest golfer of all time, is this to a T. We see him swinging a golf club on late night shows when he's two years old, uh, relentlessly swinging, chipping, putting his entire life from when he came out of the womb. His story is, is well noted on that repetition physical side, the greatest iron player uh, in the history of golf. That came about because of those things. And yet what made Tiger Woods into the golfer that he is, it was to master the mental side of golf, the most important side of golf, in my opinion, when you get to the highest of levels. All these dudes have physical gifts. Uh, what really will separate you is how you train your mind, which Tiger Woods, he brought the most incredible mental game that golf has ever seen. Uh, the ability to just tap into this place that I personally can't even comprehend, where he was just so laser focused in the biggest moments that he would essentially will a putt in or will an iron to, near the hole. And he continually did that over and over and over. It's the same mental side that allowed him to play the best golf that we've ever seen simultaneous to knowing that his entire marital scandal that would become public uh, in 2008 or 2009, the years prior to that, he knew that the press had that at their disposal and he knew it would come out eventually. And yet he was flying to these tournaments and performing at the highest level we've ever seen while having an emotional weight like that on his shoulders. Granted, it was of his own doing, but if you understand how things outside of golf can weigh on you when you play golf, you understand how truly amazing your mind has to be in order to do that. You have to have an almost sociopathic separation of the way that your brain is off of the course versus what it is on the course. I, I can't do something like that. I don't possess that capacity. If I have something that's weighing on me emotionally within my life, there's some sort of strife that has come about and I go onto the golf course, I take that with me. It, it's impossible for me to separate those two things. I'm, I'm not that gifted at being able to separate that. And, and in my defense, very few people are. You, you carry what you are off the course onto the course. And Tiger Woods was somehow able to not do that. It's an all-time combination of body and mind. That's what Tiger Woods is. So back to Austin Matthews and this article from Jason Myrtle, this continual search for the blend of the body and the mind. Another quote from him. Where Matthews has been able to innovate further is with his ability to shift the angle of his shots to an extreme degree. 
turning his forays into the offensive zone into a sort of geometry equation. More than how hard or accurately he shoots a puck, and he can do both when required, what makes him so difficult for goalies to stop is his ability to generate a lot of pre-shot movement combined with a lack of tells. End quote. So again, one of the most fascinating things that you can possibly come across in sports. It's retraining your body and your mind how to do things. We all have a natural way we want to do everything. doesn't matter what it is. How I type on this laptop, how I pick up this coffee mug and drink from it. We all have natural ways we want to do things. And when you get to the highest level and you determine, this is holding me back. I have to do this differently. That process of retraining yourself how to do something you naturally know how to do, it is so hard. So this Matthew search, it's really cool to read about and to look at. This daily attempt where he goes into a room with his coach and they go, let's go over your 15 shot attempts. And we're going to go on to the most granular level and try to identify what you were doing right and what you were doing wrong, what a goaltender is reading about when and where you are shooting the puck. Every single day, we are going to do that. We will continually refine your shot motion, what you are actually showing to a goaltender. And if we think that needs to change, then on the fly, we're going to try and rewire your brain to think a certain way. And we're going to rewire your body to respond in a certain way. That is an incredible process and something that I can't get enough of when high-level athletes are doing it. There's an uncomfortable side to that because just as easily as, not as easily, I, I take that back, but at the highest level when we see the body-mind blend like with LeBron and like with Tiger, in professional sports, the most gifted athletes of all time, we can see that disconnect between a body and a mind that is almost incomprehensible. We don't know why it occurs and the athletes themselves are flummoxed when it happens. Think of Chuck Knobloch, the second baseman for the Yankees 20 years or so ago, just randomly starting to throw every single throw from second base into the crowd when he would try to throw it to first base. A very simple thing he had done his entire career over and over and over and over again. And yet for reasons unknown, suddenly his mind and his body can't work in unison. So he would field a grounder and he would try to throw it to first base and he would throw it 20 feet over the first baseman's head. That's a very... Strange and incomprehensible thing that could occur. And yet, it just is. It's the same thing that Ernie Els goes through on hole one at the Masters when he suddenly starts being unable to put a ball into the hole. He, he's just whacking it around from two feet. And I see that and get super uncomfortable because I go, what, what's going on there? He's having a mental, there's some sort of mental breakdown that's going on. And after the round... Ernie Els is like, yeah, he calls it the heebie-jeebies, but he's like, look, I, I wish that this wasn't happening, but there are certain times when, for reasons unknown, I cannot physically pull the trigger on a putt. It's that disconnect between body and mind. It, we've seen it with the greatest golfer of all time, Tiger Woods. In the mid-2010s, he gets the chipping yips out of the blue. Nobody knows why. And he suddenly can't hit chips with regularity and consistently. He's hitting flubs or he's hitting it too hard or he's sculling it. And it's incredible to see. And I don't say that in a celebratory way. I mean, it's incredible to understand that the most gifted golfer of all time 
Somebody who was an absolute wizard around the greens can suddenly, for reasons unknown, have this disconnect between his mental side and his physical side. And suddenly he doesn't know how to do the thing that he has always done at the very highest level. That's the uncomfortable side of this body and mind blend. And you have to have the uncomfortable side in order to understand and celebrate the awe-inspiring side. When the body and the mind ascend into that highest plane, uh, I'll go back to LeBron and Tiger. Because out of the aftermath of that 2011 finals, LeBron found himself. And in 2013, it's the greatest we'll ever see from LeBron. His body was at its absolute peak. The physical gifts he had, they would never be greater than they were in that season. And he had found himself mentally. And so he tapped into the body at the highest level and the mind at the highest level. And what we got was what I believe is the best season of LeBron's career, that 2013 season when it just seemed like anything was possible from him. He could do anything, any pass he could make, any dunk. It didn't matter. Whatever was demanded of him, he could do because he possessed both of those things and he had intertwined them together to work in unison. Um, It's why Tiger Woods overcoming everything, you know, the, the fallout from the marital scandal, what that did to his, the mental side of his game, the countless surgeries, the back, the knee, all that stuff, the aforementioned chipping yips. It's why him overcoming all of that and winning the 2019 Masters, that is something that is so rare and so awe-inspiring that when it happens, you go, mm, I probably won't see very many things like this happen period in my entire life from anybody. Uh, it's not just an incredible human achievement. It's the epitome of why myself and everybody who likes sports, it's the epitome of why we return to them again and again and again. Thank you for listening to No Baller. This podcast can be found on any platform of your choosing. If you could rate and review and help spread the word, it would help me immensely. If you have additional feedback or thoughts, you want incorporated into the show, please email me at chris at thebeehive.com. Last but not least, if you would prefer to listen to this as a video, go to thebeehive.com and find No Baller.